willkommen to the Opera Box Pro Podcast for Monday, March 14th. I'm your host, George Cedarquist. Wherever you are, however you're listening, thanks for joining us. I'm in Germany. I just flew in this morning and boy are my arms tired. But seriously, this podcast is the first in my three-part series introducing you to the opera world of Germany. We'll take you around Berlin, we'll take you to the provinces, and we'll give you insights into the wild and wacky world, mostly, that is opera here in Das Vaterland. My guest is Will Robertson, a resident assistant director at the Deutsche Oper in Berlin. He's one of the few Americans who has really found success working in this business overseas here. Plus, he's just a great guy. Our conversation will give you an all-access pass to the Deutsche Oper. But first, I'm going to let you know why I came to Germany in the first place and why I had to come back. Plus, we've got this week's opera headlines and our Monday evening quarterback segment, where I'll preview all the shows that I plan to see while I'm here. We are America's talk radio show about opera, period. No one talks with you about opera week in, week out like we do. And what's more, on our show, you get to have your say. Leave us a message on 224-218-9-BOX. Again, 224-218-9269. Tell us what your opinion is in our Chalk Talk segment or get in the ring and referee our TKO segment. Opera Box Score is right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score, America's talk radio show about opera. Now I hear you say an opera ain't your thing, but get this. We tackle everything about opera and body slam it into a sports radio setup. The result? 60 minutes of in-depth analysis, outrageous opinions, and good, clean fun. You might even learn something. Opera class, sports radio crass. Join us for Opera Box Score Monday nights at 9 on W. When you are. Hey everybody, George Cedarquist here. Welcome to our podcast this week. I am running solo out here in Germany. Oliver is sitting on a beach somewhere probably in Javana. Well, <laughs> we all know Javana. So uh, welcome to our three-part series about opera in Germany. I want to start off by telling you a little story about how I got here in the first place all those years ago. And this is how it went down. After I finished my graduate work in directing at Northwestern in 2010, I worked in the Chicago storefront opera scene for a couple of years, but I very quickly reached a ceiling. I couldn't get jobs at Chicago Opera Theater. I couldn't get jobs at Lyric Opera for Chicago. And I, I realized I needed to do something else. I needed to meet some new people, meet some new collaborators, I needed to get like a world view of opera. I needed to get out of the country. I needed to improve my languages. And I needed someone else to pay for all this. So I concocted a research project about Regie Theater, which is a German term relating to the ways in which directors and dramaturgs, who are their counterparts working with text, musical history, dramatic history. Regie theater is the way in which they would rearrange pieces, cut parts out, generally change them, and, and tend to make them wacky. And I put together this research plan to investigate new trends in directing in Germany. Well, I applied for a Fulbright, and I got cut after the first round. I almost gave up, and then was told that there was another grant-giving institution, this time a German one, called the Alexander von Humboldt Foundation. 
And they give lots of grants for lots of different things. They give grants to Nobel Prize winners. They give grants to tenured faculty. And they also give grants to early professionals in their careers. And I applied for one of these grants. Most of the people that apply are not artists. They're people in public policy, environmental programming, urban planning. I was the first opera director to apply for this particular fellowship, which gives you a year in Germany, all expenses paid, gives you language training. Uh, if you're married, you can take your spouse. If you have children, you can take your kids. It's the most amazing thing. It just has to be done in Germany. That's the one thing. Why Germany? I'll tell you why Germany. Germany has 146 opera houses when I last counted. That in itself is reason alone to want to come to this country and see what's going on here. As part of my research program, I had to find a host institution, and that host was the Staatstheater Darmstadt. There's lots of different types of theaters in Germany. There's national theaters. There's theaters that are run by the state, just like an American state that they're in. And there's also theaters that are run by the city in which uh, they're based. All of these are funded by the government, usually with a lot of money. In fact, the artistic directors who run these theaters, the German word is intendant, these are politically appointed positions, and that's going to be important later on down the line. One way to think about how important opera is in Germany is to look at the architecture of your typical German city, whether it's got a million people in it or 100,000 or 10,000, is that the, the center of the city is the marked Platz, and that's where the farmer's markets are, so that's where you can buy your groceries. There's always three other buildings at the marked Platz. There is the Rathaus, which is where you do all your paperwork from getting your driver's license to paying your taxes. There is the post office, which is where obviously where you mail letters. It's also where you can keep your bank account if you want. The third building that you find on the central square everywhere in Germany is the opera house. And so from the architecture alone, it shows you just how important opera is to the culture here. And that was a place that I wanted to be a part of. I ended up in Darmstadt, a city of about 150,000 people. It has a very well-known technical university there. It's a college town. Uh, and it has a Staatstheater, so it is funded by the state of Hessen. The building itself houses four different branches of the arts. It houses classical music and opera in a big theater, and it hosts straight plays or theater and dance in its smaller space. And then it has a whole host of children's programs. It has a whole host of events. And it's just the lifeblood of the community. And this is something that is duplicated all over Germany. Now, so my wife... And my son and I, my daughter was not born yet. She was born in Germany. We moved to Darmstadt in the fall of 2011, and we were there for just over a year. Now, when I showed up in Darmstadt, I was just supposed to be doing something called Regie Hospitanz, which is basically like an internship. It's not very hands-on. 
you're doing a lot of kind of sitting around, taking notes, observing, which I thought was about as good as I could get. You know, this theater volunteered to host me. They didn't know who I was. Two weeks before I showed up, I had a call from my supervisor, the opern director, so the head of the opera branch of the theater. And he said, we've got a problem. Uh, the season opener, which was Donizetti's Lucia di la Memore, has lost its director. Now, our in-house assistant director on that show has been promoted to directing. Do you want to take his role and become the assistant director? Obviously, I did. That was a huge opportunity for me. And so I did that show. It went really well. I did a good job with it. And from then on, the Opera House continued to use me as an assistant director. And it was a perfect match because I got to do all this work as an assistant. The theater got a whole bunch of work out of me and didn't have to pay for it because this foundation was paying for it. And my language skills improved. I had been taking German in graduate school, and then I learned to take more German classes while I was there and, of course, used German every day in work and in daily life. We didn't speak it at home. Um, I think I spoke German at work. I could have spoken English, but really you would have had no street cred especially with like the crew, those are big burly guys and they are mostly guys and you need to get along with them because as an assistant, you're telling them what to do, where to move stuff. So you've got to have some, some credibility with them. That meant not only speaking German, but learning the local dialect of German, which they speak, which is called Hesish from the state of Hessen, which used to have a French influence. So some of their words sound vaguely French. And I use this as a tool to get those crew guys to teach me the local dialect as a way to bond with them. Now, it wasn't all fun and games in Darmstadt. I'm not even going to get into the personal life. That was a whole other thing. Uh, my wife living in Germany where she didn't speak the language, our son growing up there for a year going to school, uh, our daughter was born there, so dealing with all of that wonderful stuff. It was the best thing that happened to us in Germany. But there was a big drama that happened there. The artistic director or intendant was a man named John Dew. Now, he's an interesting guy. In the 90s, John Dew was the bad boy of directing in Germany. And he had grown up uh, in Cuba, had moved to Brooklyn as a kid, then moved to London to escape the draft in Vietnam, was totally bored with the opera scene in London. And so he moved to Dortmund where he started directing. And then he went through the system and he directed in other houses and he ended up in Darmstadt. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. He was a bit of a nutty guy, pretty unpredictable. And when I showed up in September of 2011, I was in the middle of a huge drama. And the drama was this. John Dew, the intendant, did not get along with the head conductor, also called the General Musique Director. It was a guy called Constantine Trinks. And by the way, this is all public knowledge, and you'll find out why in a second. So I'm not spilling the beans on anything here. These two guys did not get along. Here's why they didn't get along. The season before I got there, 
John Dew's partner had been cast in a show, and Constantine Trinks, the conductor, kicked him out, said he wasn't a good enough singer. Not a super bright move, perhaps, but he stood by his artistic guns. So the following season, the season I was there, when Constantine Trinks' partner was cast in the leading role in Lucia de la Mermor, John Dew took it upon himself to make her life very difficult and basically to try and force her out of the cast, kind of in retribution. Now, the Germans have a word for this, which is called mobbing, like a lynch mob, essentially. We don't really use this word in the U.S., mobbing. They had this, this word for it. And there was a lot of back and forth. There were letters written, letters posted, letters printed in the newspapers, letters posted in the theater itself. And it came to a legal case. And totally unbeknownst to me, all this had been going on. Because my German wasn't that great. And what I didn't know, it seemed like a bit like communist Russia, where you, the less you knew, the safer you were. But at one point... When this became a huge legal case between the theater and the uh, state, I was called to testify and give my account of what had been going on in the rehearsals. I was the assistant director. I was watching this all go down. The question was, was the intendant harassing this woman and trying to drive her crazy so she would quit the show in retribution for what the singer's husband had done to the intendant's partner. Well, I kind of pleaded the fifth, basically. I said, look, my German's not good enough for me to really understand what's going on, so, you know, please take mercy on me. There was a lot of back and forth. Ultimately, the courts in the state of Hessen found John Dew not guilty of mobbing. Here is why they came to that decision. Because the intendant is a politically appointed position, by saying that he was guilty, those politicians would have been also saying they had made a bad decision. And that was something that they did not want to put their necks on the line for. So what they did was they kept him on contract for another season. Not, not just the first season that we were in, but for another season so that they could basically save their own butts. And what's more, they then paid for a government inspector, let's call it, to use a term from Google, to basically follow John Dew's every move and make sure he wasn't abusing anybody. It was cheaper to hire someone to follow him around rather than to buy him out of his contract. This is insane stuff. So that was the first six weeks of my time in Germany. Now, there was a lot of other interesting stuff that happened. As part of my fellowship, I was able to go to other opera houses, see shows. I was able to go to other opera houses, meet people. I was able to go to other opera houses, watch rehearsals. You know, once you have the right people asking the right other people the right question, you can go anywhere you want. All access pass. And that was one thing that this fellowship really provided me. I saw a ton of shows. I saw a lot of rehearsals. I saw some weird stuff. I saw some stuff that didn't make sense. I remember seeing a production of Tristan Unisolde by Wagner in Mainz, which was directed by a well-known German director called Tillmann Knabe, which basically was said in some sort of like 
Egyptian state in the big wood paneled room with a whole bunch of flags and people in Egyptian military dress. Uh, that was just like the first or second act. And it ended with not just Isolde, but four different Isoldes wearing huge blonde wigs, carrying machine guns and walking into the audience. Made absolutely no sense. Uh, I saw shows in Hamburg, Munich, Wiesbaden, Frankfurt, Berlin as well. It was just an exposure to work that I'd never seen before, to stuff I never thought possible. And most notable was a production of Mozart's Die Entführung aus dem Seerail, The Abduction from the Seraglio, which was done at the Staatsoper in Berlin. It was directed by a well-known German theater director called Michael Tallheimer. And it changed my life, and I'll tell you how. It changed my life because there was literally nothing on the stage. It was a split-level stage, everything completely black. And I think there was one prop. I think there was a champagne bottle for one of the numbers towards the end of the show where there's some drinking involved. And that was it. And that night, and let's face it, they had amazing singers and actors, including the tenor Lawrence Brownlee. It really showed to me that you don't really need all that junk up there. You don't need period costumes, big sets. You know, marketing campaigns in America talk about glamorous sets and sumptuous costumes. You don't need all that. You need great singing and great acting. And it really changed my aesthetic as a director to pare things down, to take things away. And this was confirmed later on in my time in Darmstadt when I worked under a director called René Zisterer, who's actually Austrian, doing a production of The Force of Destiny, uh, La Forza del Destino, where there was, again, literally one table, a long, long sort of um, dining room table, basically, that that went the width of the stage, and that was it. And I talked to him about this, and I said, "What? what's up with the table? What, what else, what other props do we have? I need to know, because i got to get the props. And he's like, that's it. You don't need anything else. You need the story and the music. The audience will do the rest of the work, and that's all we really need. So that, to me, was such a astounding revelation to see that. I wanted to go back to Germany because I wanted to see more shows and I wanted to watch more rehearsals. I wanted to see friends. But I wanted to do something else. I wanted to keep up the relationships with the networks that I created. I wanted to meet with artistic directors, show them my portfolio, and try and talk about some sort of future collaboration. So we will see how that all pans out. That is what is coming up on the docket for the rest of my travels. We've got lots more to do on this show right now. It's time for the two-minute drill. This just in, the two-minute drill. It's time for the fastest headlines in opera news. Everything you need to know from the past week in two minutes, tops. Schubert's song cycle, Winterreise, was just presented as part of San Francisco Opera's lab inaugural season. And it was a brilliant choice to show off the company's new Taub Atrium Theater and was directed by South African artist William Kentridge, whose work has also been seen at New York's Metropolitan Opera. 
The American Academy of Arts and Letters has announced this year's awards in music. An all-male judging panel congratulated 17 winners of classical composition. Five were women, but none were minorities. Nicholas Bachler has announced he will step down as Intendant of the Bayerische Staatsoper in Munich in 2021. It will coincide with the departure of his music director, Karel Petrenko, who goes to the Berlin Philharmonic. Bachler will be 70 that year and has been in charge at Munich since 2008. Wagner's Der Meister Singer von Nuremberg was cancelled last Wednesday at the Paris Opera. The corps de ballet walked out over pay disputes. William Spalding, the Kapellmeister of the Deutsche Oper in Berlin, has been named to succeed Renato Balsadonna as head of the Royal Opera House's Chorus this summer in London. Spalding is American and has been associate chorus master at the Vienna Volksoper and principal chorus master at the Liceau Barcelona for five years. Carlisle Floyd premiered his first opera in 1949 and achieved lasting success six years later with his third, Susanna. Last weekend, Carlisle was present at the world premiere of his 12th opera, Prince of Players, about the cross-dressing 17th-century English actor Edward Nyston. That was at Houston Grand Opera. And lastly, world-renowned author Salman Rushdie visited St. Louis over the weekend to discuss his novel, Shalimar the Clown, which is being adapted into an opera. That production will make its world premiere at the Opera Theatre of St. Louis in June. That's the two-minute drill. Opera Class. Sports Radio Crass. This is Opera Box Score. Who made the grade? Here's Monday evening quarterback. All right. Well, Monday evening quarterback this time around is going to be more of a preview than it is going to be a review. As faithful listeners to the show will know, we take shows that we've seen and we give simple letter grades to reduce them to their lowest possible terms. Uh, I've got a whole slate of shows that I'm going to be seeing coming up, and let me talk you through them right now. The first uh, is a premiere, so a brand new production of an opera called Regina, and this is at the Meiningen Theater. It's being directed by August Hoggs, who is the intendant there. And I'm going to be in residence for a couple of days in mine again, so I'm going to see the final dress rehearsal and then that performance as well. Between those two productions, those two presentations, I head off to Weimar to see a production of Andrea Moses's version of Karl Maria von Weber's Der Freischutz which is really the only opera that's done ever by Weber. Uh, it is a story of a demonic pact between a representative of the devil and a easily swayed hunter. I've directed parts of it before. Uh, I've looked at the photos of this production, and it's, it's suitably weird. People in leather jackets with machine guns, so can't wait for that. I'm going to be seeing two productions by the German director Johannes Erat. The first is in Frankfurt, and it's uh, Giulio Cesare by Handel. Now, Frankfurt is a very important opera company. It is, outside of Berlin, one of the biggest and one of the best. Great singers, great directors. It's a beautiful house. A couple of years ago, I saw a production of Stravinsky's... The Rake's Progress, and I am excited to go back and see what this company and this director are going to do with this Handel opera. 
the following week, I go to Darmstadt, my old stomping ground, and I'm going to see The Cunning Little Vixen by Jana Czech uh, in a house which I know and love. And then from there, on to Munich to see another production by Johannes Erath. This is Un Ballo in Mascara, A Masked Ball by Verdi. At least I hope I get to see it. It's really hard to get a ticket anytime to the Bayerische Staatsoper, the Bavarian State Opera. Just a big house, very popular. I will say this. I have been there before. I saw an amazing production, a traditional production, which is saying something for me, uh, of the Barber of Seville, which was just hilarious. That opera house, if you like gold and rococo and mirrors and silk eat your heart out it's it's overwhelming how beautiful that opera house is i can only hope that uh this director does something suitably weird with it back in berlin for my final week it is a real lineup here beginning the week is the uh wagner festspiele the wagner festival at the staatsoper um, which I bought one of the last tickets to go see Wagner's Parsifal, directed by Dmitry Chernyakov. He has directed at the Met. He also directs a lot in his native Russia. This show is five hours long, so definitely a steal, a bargain. Um, and interested to see how this is going to compare to his other work. I've got a couple days off. I might be traveling to the city of Braunschweig to see Pique Dame, uh, a Russian opera directed by Philip Kochheim, who's a younger, up-and-coming experimental director, and then to Magdeburg, which is also about an hour away from Berlin, to see a production of La Boheme. The intendantin, the female intendant there in Magdeburg, is a woman named Karen Stone, and she and I have been talking over email, but I haven't seen her work, so I'm excited to do that. The final two productions, I'll be back in Berlin and back at my host institution of the Deutsche Oper to be part of their Strauss Wochen, which you will hear my guest Will Robertson and I talk about. The first piece is a lesser known piece done by Strauss, which is the Egyptische Helena, directed by Marco Morelli, an Italian director. And then finishing my week and finishing my trip is the Klaus Gut production of Zalame. There is not a more intense 80 minutes in the opera world, I would say, than Zalame. I know we've talked about it before on the show. It has a famous dance of the seven veils where the singer is supposed to bear all. Can't wait to see what happens with that. In general, all of these shows are standard rep, I'd say. You've got some German rep, Strauss and Wagner, Weber as well. You've got some Italian rep with Giulio Cesare and Regina, uh, Ballo in Mascara. But my feeling tells me that even in the big houses, as well as these smaller houses too, the productions tend to be pretty wild. The best way is going to be for me to find some photos and get those up on our website, Opera Box Score. Dot squarespace.com so you can at least be looking at what I'm seeing. And of course, in our next segment next week on Monday Evening Quarterback, I'll be able to talk you through exactly what I saw. 
Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. Whether you're allergic to opera or you're a devoted fan, our show is for you. We tackle the week's opera headlines and body slam them into a sports radio setup. The result, 60 minutes of play-by-play analysis, exclusive interviews, and scandalous opinions. Plus the heroes, villains, and stats from this crazy art form that we love and love to complain about. Join us for Opera Box Score Monday nights at 9 on WNUR. This is Oliver Camacho filing a field report from Chicago. Uh, The first part of this is the season announcement made by Chicago Opera Theater yesterday uh, at a press event that I was invited to with champagne out of a plastic cup, which was very nice. Thank you very much, Chicago Opera Theater. They have great news for us. They are expanding their season to four operas across three venues Uh, One of the venues is very exciting to me. It's the Studebaker Theater, which is on the first floor of the Fine Arts Building. It's a theater that I've always walked past when I'm going uh, into the Fine Arts Building and has never been open to the public. But they're remodeling it, and the theater should be ready in time for uh, one of their fall shows. The season begins, though, at the Music Box Theater which is a place I've never heard opera in before, but I think actually might work. It's a, a venue in Chicago that shows movies. The first show is Le Vin Herbe by Frank Martin uh, in an English translation. It's the story of Tristan and Isolde. And uh, it's about a 90-minute show. Andreas Mitasek will be stage directing, and he uh, suggests that this opera will be cast with mostly young artists. The second show will take place in the Studebaker Theater and is one of my favorites, Purcell's Fairy Queen, which is described as a semi-opera, used to be performed uh, as a part of a full evening with Shakespeare's Midsummer Night's Dream. We're not going to get all of Shakespeare. We're not going to get all of Purcell. We're going to get a little bit of both, I think is the suggestion. Also staged by Andreas and uh, accompanying the singers will be a band or an orchestra, probably a period orchestra called Musica Angelica. The third opera in the season also takes place at the Studebaker Theater and is a commission, Chicago Opera Theater's first commission, co-commissioned with Long Beach Opera, Andreas Medesek's other company. This is by a composer named Stuart Copeland, who is also known as the drummer of The Police, the rock band. The name of the opera is The Invention of Moral. This show will be directed by Jonathan Moore. Um, The last opera of the season is a premiere possibly the american premiere supposed to be premiered at new york city opera before their downfall uh, by philip glass the perfect american the story of walt disney and this opera will take us back to the harris theater directed by uh, kevin newberry so to summarize for opera season all operas performed in english uh, no big cast announcements. Three venues, the Studebaker Theater, which is very exciting, the Music Box Theater, which is sort of weird, and one show at the Harris Theater. The second half of this field report, I just want to tell you that I saw my first Beyond the Aria concert, uh, which is a series of concerts produced by Lyric Unlimited and the Harris Theater for Music and Dance. They're in their third season now, and this is the first one I'm catching and there's only only one more left uh, in May featuring Christine Brewer. The cast for this particular concert was Susanna Phillips, Christian Van Horn, and Mingji Lei. 
and the artistic director also serving as pianist and MC Craig Terry. The program is a combination of arias, songs, and a little music theater. And as it turns out, this is exactly what the audience wants. They don't want to be challenged that much. They're willing to hear some weird stuff, but ultimately they want some things that they recognize, some popular songs, maybe very popular songs, and some high art. And they achieved that. It was a fantastic program with some stuff I didn't know, uh, like a really funny song cycle uh, based on Mark Twain quotes that Susanna Phillips sang. The tenor Ming-Ji Lei sang some songs in Mandarin. I won't attempt to uh, explain those two, but they were beautiful. There were some arias like Quando Men Vo and Christian Van Horn sang an amazing Elegy Mamo. I've been listening to this guy sing for many years, and I did not know that he had that in him, and it makes me very excited for his future. It was a very athletic and also touching performance of that aria. Top billing for this recital clearly was given to Susanna Phillips, and she did not disappoint. Uh, she is an amazing recitalist, and her chanson triste of Du Parc might have been one of the best I've ever heard in a live performance. It was phrased very intelligently. It was very tender. And the song was filled with detail without being fussy. On a final note, I just want to say that the programming for Beyond the Aria is the main reason for its success. But the other part of the success of this event is the venue itself. This is the Pritzker Pavilion, which is the outdoor pavilion for the Millennium Park Festival, Grand Park Festival concerts. But they close the proscenium off with this beautiful glass wall, like a curtain, and they put the audience onto the stage, and the audience gets to look down onto the park, and the piano is pushed up right against that glass wall. So you have this beautiful view the entire night, and the acoustic is fantastic, and the space suddenly becomes very intimate, and there are some tables on the stage, and they serve wine and nuts and whatnot, and it feels somewhat you know, posh, while still feeling fun and uh, celebratory. Beyond the Aria has come up with a great formula. It's an event that shows true artistry while still being fun, and it puts you in an environment that feels posh without feeling pretentious. I will definitely go back to one of these. And now back to you, George. In Germany. You're listening to Opera Box Score with George Cedarquist. Let's go inside the huddle. Will Robertson is my guest on the podcast this week. He was born in San Francisco. He studied at Oxford University as an undergrad. And then he moved straight to Germany and started working in the German system as a assistant dramaturg, assistant director. He started off in Gelsenkirchen which is in northwest Germany. He moved to Oldenburg, which is in the true northern part of Germany. And then since December of 2012, he has been a regie assistant, assistant director at the Deutsche Oper in Berlin. We had a fantastic conversation. You were not going to meet an easier-to-talk-to guy who is more into opera and who knows more about opera at his age than I think Will does. So sit back, relax, 
and enjoy. Will, thank you so much for doing this for thank you us. For inviting me. Here we are in your lovely office at the Deutsche Oper in Berlin. Indeed, here we are in my lovely office with its bare walls and the pictures I keep intending to hang up but don't. And you have windows. I have I have a window. It looks out onto a, a light well. <laughs> um, just to put you in context for our listeners, how did you end up at the Deutsche Oper? Um, I ended up in the Deutsche Oper. Um, to move back to move back to the beginning where I started out in Germany um, as an intern at a theater in a place or an opera in a place called Gelsenkirchen, um, which is in the Ruhr region, um, very industrial. From there, I moved to Oldenburg, which is in the northwest near Bremen. And from there, uh, this, that was worked as an assistant director. And from there, I moved to Berlin and ended up uh, getting applying for and getting a job here at the Deutsche Oper Berlin as an assistant director. Put this company into context for the city of Berlin. There's three big opera houses here. Can you tell us a little bit about each of the three and how they kind of stack up against each other? No problem. The three opera houses are the Staatsoper, which isn't us, the Deutsche Oper, that's us, and the Komische Oper. Um, I put those sort of in order there. Um, originally, the Staatsoper was for the sort of nobles and um, high society people. The the Komische Oper was more the people's opera, so like the comic opera, very much a little bit, a little bit more easygoing, a little bit smaller. And the Deutsche Oper was then um, was then the burghers, the uh, the mercantile class. Um, used to actually be the Charlottenburg Opera, um, which was the town that Berlin then subsumed and is now just a neighborhood here. Um, currently, uh, it's a bit of an interesting. Uh, competition between three of them. We're all technically the same organization. It's one big foundation that runs this. Uh, the Komische Oper is well known for doing very modern, very um, avant-garde productions, which uh, very often feature, like, or very often put the staging definitely and the final result high above the music, um, or as far as what people as critics would say. They do a lot of operetta, they do musicals, uh, recently West Side Story, uh, they did Kiss Me Kate, ages back, it's that kind of very, like, um, uh, very much more accessible. I'd not say we're inaccessible, but say that's sort of what it is. Um, they also have, until recently, done everything in German. Mm -hmm. So, all translated, the idea being... You can go there and you can understand it's in your language. The Deutsche Oper and the Staatsoper have very similar roles, but the Staatsoper through Daniel Berenboim tends to get a lot more of the very prestigious stuff, a lot more of the um, the absolute tip-top singers, although we do similar, we do also quite well with that. We get a lot of very big names here. We have a lot of major conductors and things like that. Um, so the head conductor here is Donald, Donald Runnicles, indeed. And so we're not we're not doing too badly in that respect. Yeah. Um, but then again, that's what it is. It's hard to differentiate the two. Um, but if we had to say something, we are more the folks opa. Um, we are more. We have the bigger. We have the bigger repertoire. The, they have a big repertoire there too. But we have, I think, last season twenty six rep pieces plus five new productions, and this year we have the same number of rep and I think eight new productions. Mm -hmm. So we just have a huge stage, a huge depth of repertoire, and just a lot of big productions. Um, you'll see pretty much the top ten most played operas uh, 
in any given year will be here as well. Mm-hmm. We'll have a Boheme, we'll have a Carmen, we'll have um, an Aida now, which has been missing for some years. Uh, we'll have uh, Giovanni, we'll have, if there's Wagner going on, we'll definitely have some. Um, this year uh, we've had Rienzi, Tannhäuser, Lohengrin. Um, anything else Wagner-wise? No. Um and just just major big repertoire stuff. And then coming up at the end of this month, which I've talked about earlier on our show, is these uh, the Strauss Woche, Wochen. Wochen more yeah, than one right? week. It's more than one week. Uh, it's a long, a long opera as you need to. <laughs> exactly, and so that is a celebration of his work. Yeah, it is. I mean, I can't say the exact reason or what the total reason behind that is but it's also it's very interesting because we have a number of very uh, or sorry not not very unknown but lesser known strauss works uh what we had last week we started up uh, with the uh liebe der danae the love of the danaids um and this next week we're currently tonight is the piano dress rehearsal for uh, Egyptian Helen, Egyptische Helena, also lesser known work of his. Um, coming up in during the Charles Wolfen, we've got Salome, which I'm heavily involved in, uh, Rosenkavalier, which I'm tangentially involved in, and I think that's, and Electra, obviously, those are sort of the major uh, works that we're doing. We haven't gotten Ariadne auf Naxos, but... Um, we wish we did. And as an assistant director, I mean, does your job really change on all those different productions? What What's different for you between each of these pieces of the yeah, rep well, and what's yes, consistent? Actually, I mean, um, Salome, we don't, none of these productions are new, or at least they've all already premiered. So I don't have my actual function as an assistant director. I'm not sitting next to a director and assisting him and helping him with the coordination of the production. Salome, I'm doing um, a pretty easy remount because it's with the original cast and it only premiered in February. So, or end of January, February. So it will be very fresh, hopefully, in their minds. I've got a few new cast members coming in. So I'll be rehearsing them in um, over uh, several days. And... Then Rosenkavalier, um, I will actually be calling the lighting. That's a, huh. unique to the Deutsche Oper that yeah. the uh, second assistant on a production, or in the future, another assistant, um, it premiered ages ago, um, runs the lighting cues. So I sit in the box and call lights. How much practice do you get? Um, for that, I were, I've done this before. So I went to rehearsals last year and... Actually, Strauss is hard, so Mm -hmm. uh, I had to sit down with a tape and work through it, which, you know, with our DVDs, you have the right cuts, and so you know the visual cues, and Strauss is just, to be honest, a question of being able to read along and switch between a visual cue, jump back down to the music, know where you are immediately, and then give a couple of, uh, you know, give a bunch of strobo cues. That can be uh, adventurous, to say the least. Uh, I want to move the conversation on to Germany as a whole, but before I do, I want to ask you about the Tischlerei. The Tischlerei. The what carpentry. is that? Oh, that means carpentry shop. Um, we moved all of our workshops out of here a couple of years ago. They centralized them um, on, in a, an old train station out in the uh, former eastern sector um, where all the sets are made for all three opera houses um, and all the costumes as well. Um the Tischlerei is now a studio space, uh, which 
it's probably one of the largest studio spaces I've ever seen. It's um, it's about as wide across the stage because it had to hold the old scenery. Right. Um, and it has become a new stage for children's opera and specifically new children's opera. So you're not going to be getting, say, the Magic Flute for Kids, which we do have on our main stage, or uh, sort of pared-down versions of classic operas. What you'll be getting there is very specifically devised or composed work with a major focus on things involving or for children and uh, youth audiences. Um, um, for instance, at the beginning of this season, we had um, the Iafaten, the Odysseus, the Wanderings of Odysseus, um, which was a devised production involving um, a fairly well-known kids theater in Berlin or theater that does kids stuff and a composer, um, a young composer. And he worked very, he worked specifically with the uh, theater group to compose a, a score and um, to edit his score. So it wasn't just, here's my composition. They devised sure. it together wow. um, there. Yeah. I mean, which is, that's pretty big. And I mean, cool. the, the very first thing I did here was based, was called uh, Ovi Shun is Panama which was there, which is a very, like, beloved uh, children's book in Germany. Like, oh, how beautiful is Panama? That's what that means. About a tiger and a bear who decide to move to Panama, and they keep turning right. And by the time they get to Panama, <laughs> they've started back home, and they decide that they found Panama, and they're happy where they were. And that was a very modern opera, which we did with about four or five singers. And... Um, it was a commissioned work, and so we had a big score and worked from it in traditional. But again, hmm. audience from about four years old. So that's what that is, the dish that I... Um, if I was going to describe the structure of the American opera system, I would probably say something like this, that you have a very few number of big companies at the top, and those are pretty evenly spread geographically, uh, east to west. New York, Chicago, Houston, San Francisco, you might say Seattle as well. There's a huge glut of mid-sized companies, which tend to be doing the most conservative work because they're the ones that are truly beholden to their audiences. And I'll loop back to that question later. Mm -hmm. And then you have an interesting sort of third tier of so-called micro-opera companies, we were in Chicago, we call them storefront opera companies, um, that are working on absolute shoestring budgets. Maybe they're paying their artists. They probably aren't. And they're doing uh, the much more experimental work, the outlying sort of work. Uh, how does that compare to the system here in Germany as a whole? Uh, well, the way you describe it, because I have only worked in Germany, um, is completely different. Germany is... Uh, through various quirks of history, everybody has an opera house. There are three major houses here, which we talked about, but there's also very well thought of, very well funded off opera. And then you get, before you even get to off, off to sort of what they call the free scene um, with the Neukölln Oper, which is very, just a black box, but very high quality. And that's here in Berlin. It's here in Berlin. The Sophienseele, which is a lot of dance as well. Um, it's very, very interesting. And then enormous, the, the Radial System. It's like an old, I think it was a mill work out on the spree. It's an enormous hall. And they tend to do work that involves theatrical staging of orchestral works. A lot of dance work, but also just sort of ideas of 
non-traditional cla- but classic pieces. They did uh, like a staged version of the uh, the Christmas Oratorium um, there a number of years ago, for instance. Um, mm. The Four Seasons, choreographed by Sasha Waltz. Um, so you have that kind of work out there. Um, and that's just Berlin. Um, every little town here has an opera house. Of course, some of them are closing. Of course, some of them are under financial pressure. Uh, but whether or not they do conservative or experimental work, it's really based on who's running them. Um, if they're very small and under a lot of financial pressure, they'll probably be aiming to get the take the audience with them. But you still will end up with some very interesting work from some very small and unexpected places here. Um, so nothing like the American system. You're just looking at a huge cushion of cash. And is that money starting to go away? It's starting to be questioned um, in a big way. I think there was a big round of closures after the uh, after the reunification uh, because suddenly you couldn't. It wasn't about competing with the east or the west on a cultural front. Um, that was actually oddly supportive um, in some respects. Um, but I won't get too far into it because I don't know enough about it to say anything about being completely ignorant, <laughs> but um, and insensitive. But a lot of it. Like, now the recession has started to squeeze some stuff, and there every there are bigger names appearing in the sort of risky stuff. Um, big controversies. Rostock shut its uh, opera side, um, and there's been some big threats about shutting Weimar um, or, or combining Weimar and Erfurt, um, which are two fairly large towns. Weimar, most famous for its associations with Goethe, Schiller, and actually Wagner as well. And those two cities are relatively close together. I relatively think, right? close together. Uh, not so close, but mm-hmm. still, that they would share an opera company, um, much in the same way that some, certain other towns do, like uh, Duisburg and uh, Dusseldorf share an opera company here. But that sort of consolidation, uh, this is sort of the next wave of it, and it's a question of what survives it. Um, mm. There was about 10 years ago, there was talk about whether or not this opera house was necessary because the Staatsoper does the big operas and the Komische Oper does the avant-garde work. And why do we need a third uh, house in an enormous building that looks like a very glorified parking structure or a brilliant piece of brutalist mm-hmm. modernism, depending on your You make the call. Yeah. Um, in America, in, in my opinion... Um, Audiences are really the ones that are programming the works that are done. So general managers think they're giving the people what they want, which is tried and true, dusty, quote, traditional productions of the standard rep. Uh, On this show, I've taken issue with that time and time again. I'm not going to... Good for you. I'm not going to beat that horse one more time. But who's doing the programming in the German houses? Is it really coming from, you know, what the people want to see? Is it coming from specifically... uh, you know, the singers that are available, is it coming from the artistic directors or the, the intendanten? What's your opinion? Um, well, opinion, I mean, it's coming from the intendanten there. Um, people, they, intend, like, becoming an intendant um, in an official state theater, or Stadttheater, or Staatstheater, which is essentially the same thing. It's a very annoying distinction. It's quite dull. But uh, is a political appointment, um, so you have to show yourself to be interesting and to be someone who would be 
and who can deal with the politicians there and deal with the funding, various funding bodies and the larger government funding. But they're also doing the programming. Um, it's a big complaint, actually, from the German side um, that the more conservative opera growers here have is they wish it was like in the States where they be, they get what they asked for. They get big, glossy productions of Aida with elephants and giraffes and everything, um, whereas our Aida... Uh, features only three characters on stage, Aida, Amneris, and uh, Radames, and no, everyone else is either in the audience or off stage singing. <laughs> the entire chorus is dispersed um, in the orchestra seats, wow. and they sing um, possibly right into your ear, right next to you. Um, again, the concept... This was something that came from a desire of the artistic director. Um, I thought it was quite neat. Um, mm-hmm. And that's where it's coming from. It's also coming from the dramaturgy. I don't know how much... Um, we haven't talked about super... dramaturgy a ton on this show. Uh, it's an important role in the German system, and I think we're going to save it for Go another for it. episode. Big, um, big topic. A lot of, lot yeah. of place, a lot of, lot of easy ways to put your foot in your mouth, uh, talking about dramaturgy yeah. and its discontents. But it sounds like that, you know, despite my perception of it, that, that Germany in general is a place for far out concept for, you know, so-called regie theater, where the pieces are dissected and torn apart, you know, in the hands of the dramaturg, that there's actually a space here for standard rep done in standard ways. There is space for that. Um, and a lot of it, uh, some of it is the repertoire. Uh, big, for instance, here, our Tosca is the oldest piece in our repertoire. It's from 1968, if I am not being correct. It's directed by Borislav Balak. Uh, costume and set Philippe Saint-Just and it looks like Tosca on the soup can. It is you have you have the Capella, um, you have then the Palazzo Farnese, big luxurious salle taken presumably from original sketches and then you are on top of the Castel Sant'Angelo for the final act and every famous tenor and soprano in the last 50 years has done it. Hmm. If you put on the jacket, you're going as a tenor, you're going to be very intimidated by some of the names that have been written down and crossed out on the label as to whose jacket it is. Hmm. Um, one gentleman from the uh, the uh, ex the firing squad has actually been in every single performance. Wow, of it. it's all pretty much what he does. Um, he's only actually seen the opera one time. Okay. Um, He's, but he's been in it uh, over, I think, over 600 times. Jeez. Yeah, well, he only knows the funeral march. So, okay. Uh, well. It's a good thing to know. It's an important thing to have someone who's reliable there, let me tell you. But uh, otherwise. What ways do you think the, the German system needs to change? Uh, again, on this show, I've gone off on you know how I think the American system uh, the audience is being done a disservice by the people in charge of it that are programming it, how the middle-tier opera companies are the ones that are between a rock and a hard place because they don't have the money to do interesting new stuff, nor do they have the bare-bones infrastructure that the small companies have to do. What, what needs to change here? Um, what needs to change? Difficult. It's difficult to say anything that you haven't said about the American uh, companies. You're, we're experiencing 
Um, although the structures are different, so you're experiencing similar uh, drop-off in audience uh, numbers. You're experiencing uh, a similar uh, feeling that the opera is not as culturally relevant as it was. Um, the Kumush Opera in recent years has been a big bright spot because uh, Barry Kosky, who took over there two years ago, uh, three years ago now, geez, uh, has really upped his audience numbers. He's done a lot of operetta. He's been much more boulevard, much more, uh, much bigger, louder, more colorful, mm -hmm. and just tried to sort of get people in and said, look, this is my, this is your opera house. Uh, you can, they have surtitles in the seats. Um, one of the available languages is Turkish. This is just to say this is placed to the big Turkish population in Berlin. Mm -hmm. um, needs to broaden it, like everyone, needs to broaden its appeal. Um, needs to learn some strategies from American companies about sponsorships, about raising money for specific things. It's something my boss is quite good at, is coming up with, we need enough cash to f afford this. We need to do this specific thing. Can you help us with fundraising there? But in the same way that uh, European universities don't rely on their alumni, uh, German opera houses don't have the idea of relating directly to their audience in a financial sense and that's right. something that needs to come in so that they don't get too much about their own little academic artistic ideals there um but again it's all about fine about creating um uh a cultural legacy that they can maintain that people are interested in coming to people are interested in seeing this idea in germany of a kulturgut like a cultural treasure that you have there and that's something that um i think they need to maintain and push um i want to wrap this up with a, with a question on that note something that we're following in america is the influx of migrants into germany uh and how is that affecting opera how is it affecting its programming how is it affecting its artists and how is it affecting its audience do you think i think it's, it's taking going to take a little while for it to have these effects one of the Facts of the matter is that we plan so far in advance that these things take a very, uh, uh, like, take a very, very long time to show up. Um, particularly, we had a staging that at the very beginning of the season that dealt with some things that had to do with boat people, but that was very much a coincidence. Vera Nemirova, directed that staging, said, "You know, I didn't intend for this to be a, an opera about refugees, right. but this is what it's. This was my idea, and it fits very well now." Um, we are doing some projects with refugees in the Tischlerei, as you mentioned, um, working with them on stuff like that. Um, we're trying to do outreach programs. This is something my colleagues and I have been very, uh, try to get directly involved in about the idea that um, it shouldn't just be about bringing the refugees here and going, let's talk about your story and why don't you show us something. It should maybe about the idea of, hey, would you like to come to the opera? And also about the idea of saying, welcome this is something very German. This is, this is Germany. This is what this cultural thing is very important to Germany. Welcome, come in, look at it, have a look. Some people haven't been to the opera. Some people have and would like to continue that. And it's about trying to make that part of their welcome here. Um, we have state funding. We can let them in for free. It doesn't, it won't kill us. Mm -hmm. um, and that's something I'm hoping that we'll use in a great uh, a great deal. Um, at the moment, we're not seeing a huge amount of change. It's the the Schauspiel, the straight theater, that's able to react a little bit more quickly to right. that. Um, as for the singers, uh, we are not seeing an influx of excellent uh, 
shall we say, like excellent Syrian or North African opera singers, just because that's we already had that international basis there. Um, Right on. Will, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. Uh, I'm looking forward to hanging out with you uh, in the next week or so. Cool. I'm looking forward to forcing you to play Jilda when she doesn't show up. Good call, bad call on Opera Box Score. Thanks again to Will Robertson for joining the conversation in our In the Huddle segment. Going to wrap up the show here with Good Call, Bad Call, and uh, I've got a great call actually here. This is a letter from one of our listeners, Kyle Klein II, who uh, is responding to the last show we did in the opera versus musical theater clash. And in what is a very articulate and lengthy letter, Kyle makes a great point, and he says, quote, the vast majority of postings on theater in Chicago are non-equity, many of them completely unpaid. The people looking there for auditions are seldom the equity members, and therefore this issue has little to do with equity and much more to do with the culture and the standards, end quote. Could not agree with Kyle any more than that, that at the level that both these um, companies are operating at, uh, it really is the truth that we're looking at non-equity musical theater folks here that are not paid. Now, however, Kyle does go on to make a point that by posting on a musical theater website, floating opera should have played by their rules. It seems to me that actually the opposite is true, is that musical theater folks coming to an opera audition should be expected to play by those same opera rules. That's our show for this week. Our in-show announcer is Norm Waddell. Visit Norm on the web at voxershorts.com. That's V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S dot com. At WNUR, our programming director is Bill Scholne, and the general manager is Maddie Higgins. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. However you listen to our podcast, please let us know what you think. Be sure to leave comments, reviews, and those cute little stars. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter by searching for Opera Box Score. Be sure to like our Facebook page, and if you know people who would enjoy our show, help us spread the word by sharing our posts. You can email us at operaboxscore at gmail.com and suggest a chalk chalk segment. On our website, operaboxscore.squarespace.com, you can stream archived episodes and learn more about our team. I am back on March 21st, podcasting from Darmstadt, my old stomping ground as an assistant director. You can follow my adventures in Germany by listening to this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to keep the conversation about opera going, even if you're super, super jet lagged.